This week on Worldview, just 50 days to go to the G20 summit in India. Still no sign of a consensus over Ukraine at the Sherpa meeting and the finance ministers and central bank governors meetings this week. What hopes are there of a joint communique and just how much does that matter to India? Hello and welcome to Worldview at The Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. We're on episode 116 by now. But this week, in fact, the past two weeks, marked an important moment in the G20 presidency for India, with a crucial Sherpa meeting held in Hampi and the last finance ministers and central bank governors meeting in Gandhinagar being held back to back. Now, this is before the final summit in September. In fact, there will be one more Sherpa meet just before the leaders come together. Remember, there are two twin tracks of any G20 presidency. So there's the Sherpa track and there's the finance track. The two tracks also preside over about 13 working groups between them. And the Sherpa track really looks to bring them all into a leader's declaration that they present and put up for adoption on September 9th to 10th this year, when the summit will be held in Delhi's Pragati Maidan. Let's give you some quick facts about the G20, although we have spoken about the G20 on past worldviews, so you know a lot of this. 19 countries and the European Union formed the G20 grouping that was set up in 1999. In fact, from 2008, the leaders of G20 nations have been meeting as well. It's, it's basically an economic grouping. Uh, the countries that are members, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, the Republic of Korea or South Korea, Mexico, Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, South Africa, Turkey, the UK, the US and the European Union. Spain is a permanent invitee as are some of the others we'll tell you about. G20 countries together represent around 85% of the global GDP, 75% of global trade and about 66% of the world population, about two-thirds. India's presidency began in November 2022. Uh, the summit that's going to be held will actually be two months early in September 2023. That's understood to be due to weather and pollution considerations in Delhi at that time. Now, apart from the G20 members and international organizations like the UN, WHO, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, African Union, ASEAN, the Southeast Asian nations, in fact, India has had uh, has invited nine special invitees. Now, these include Bangladesh, Egypt, Mauritius, Netherlands, Nigeria, Oman, Singapore, Spain, and the UAE. Many of these are invited every year. Some of these, particularly the ones from the Global South, are India's special invitees for this year. And, and that's where countries like um, Bangladesh, for example, or Mauritius come in, particularly in the region. So let's speak about where we're at at this point in the G20 presidency and what are some of the challenges that seem to have emerged in the last few weeks and months. These are the challenges ahead of the government and the G20 secretariat ahead of the final summit in September. One to begin with is, of course, no consensus on a joint statement, leaders declaration, joint communique, whatever you want to call it. And this is basically on language on the Ukraine war. It's normally paragraphs three, four and five. Uh, if there is no joint communique on September the 10th, that will be a first in the G20's history. So certainly this is an important thing 
that India is looking at closely, but trying to make the point that there are other important issues at hand as well. At the end of the third finance ministers and central bank governors meeting, FMCBG as it's called, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman said both Russia and China did not sign on to those paras that had been imported from last year's Bali Declaration, Joint Leaders Declaration, and hence only a chair's summit could be issued. Listen in. The chair's statement is because we still don't have a common language on the Russia-Ukraine war. And our position since February has been that we've derived the statement from Bali, the leader's statements which was arrived at in the summit. And the February Bengaluru statement was the feeder into this one. And that's because also that the language given in Bali leader's summit, we don't have the mandate to change that. So it must be left to the leaders during the summit in September to take a call on that. Till before that, we didn't think it was right for us to change the language. However, there was one difference from what India has been seeing in the past few months, unlike in the March foreign ministers meeting, for example, where Russia and China had exactly the same objections to the paragraph. And you can see more about that really on Worldview, uh, I think number 98, where we dealt with the foreign ministers meeting. In these finance ministers meeting, China and Russia came out slightly separately with different objections to the paragraphs on Ukraine. One, China stated that the G20 FMCBG meeting is not the right forum to discuss geopolitical issues. So certainly not the finance ministers meeting. It'll remain to be seen what, uh, what China says about the final leaders meeting. Russia, in fact, disassociated itself from the status of the document entirely as a common outcome because of the references in what it said with paragraphs 2, 3, and 5, basically relating to the Ukraine war and its, its uh, impact on the world. So with the possibility of no communique coming together, the India Sherpa said this about what all of this can mean. Listen in. The Russia-Ukraine war is not our creation. It is not a creation of developing countries and emerging countries. It is not a priority for us. Our priority is developmental issues. Our priority is uh, growth. Our progress. Our priority is inclusive growth, sustainable growth. Our priority is more finance from multilateral institution. Our priority is uh, sustainable development goals. Our priority is technological transformation. Our priority is gender equality. Our priority is not war. That's not our priority at all. That may be a priority for somebody else. So that is why we'll discuss right in the end. And we are... Whether we get a solution or not, that is nothing to reflect. All right. So when it comes to that first challenge, the Sherpa making it clear, India is not responsible for the war in Ukraine. We're not responsible. Everyone has to take blame or responsibility for the lack of a joint community. The second big challenge is ensuring the attendance of all leaders. Remember, the success of a G20 summit often depends on being able to bring all the leaders under one roof and have them hammer out a consensus. During this year's summit, India is certainly hopeful that it could have all the leaders as it would not only show global unity on India's presidency, but also project India as the balancing power. Um, however, it, it remains to be seen just whether that can be achieved given that last year not even a joint photograph, what's called the family photograph of the G20 could be achieved and we haven't had any family photographs at any of the G20 meetings so far. In particular, the presence or absence of President, Russian President Putin, Chinese President Xi, 
will not only indicate how far India has been able to bring all sides on board, but may also decide what happens to the attendance of G7 leaders at the same functions and sessions. In the past, uh, certainly in Indonesia as well, we had seen some of the Western countries saying they would boycott uh, any meeting that Mr. Putin was at. Uh, so it, it could lead to its own chain of reactions and therefore the attendance of G20 leaders is extremely important and it is a challenge. Here's what the MEA spokesperson Arindam Bagshi said this week. Invitations have gone out to all the you know, G20 members as well as the invitee countries, the international organizations and the invitee international organizations. This is a physical summit and we would hope that all the invitees are able to participate in person for this summit. There have been confirmations, I understand, but again, I don't have any specific response on any particular leader, yes or no, and I don't think that would be fair to look at it that way. But yes, we're looking forward to welcoming the leaders here for our G20 Leaders Summit, New Delhi Leaders Summit uh, in September. Okay, on to the third big challenge. That's the induction of the African Union as a member of the G20. Remember, India has said it has substantial support for its move to bring in the African Union chair. Uh, remember, the African Union is a grouping made up of 55 countries on the continent, while the African Union is a regular invitee to the G20. This year, India plans to make it a member uh, which would give it the ability to shape G20 outcomes. Remember, Prime Minister Modi, in a very rare move, actually uh, sent a letter to all his counterparts in G20 countries asking for support for this move from India, which is meant to be part of India's promotion of the voice of the global south being represented in its G20, as well as an attempt really to balance the G20's membership right now, which has a very large European presence. If you just look at the fact that the UK is there, France is there, Germany is there, the European Union is there, Spain is a permanent invitee. Even so, while most countries have expressed their approval of the idea of bringing the African Union in, here are the challenges to that plan. One, from other regional groupings like ASEAN or CELAC in, in South America, uh, they are regular invitees and they may object to this differential uh, uh, preference really for the African Union alone. Countries like Netherlands, Spain and Switzerland, they all have larger economies than some of the other members in the G20 today. So they're saying actually the G20 doesn't represent the 20 largest economies of the world and they would like to be part of it as well. The third, with the consensus being so hard to manage amongst 20 members, particularly this year, particularly after the Ukraine war, the induction of an entire continent could make the G20's decisions that much harder to pass. Obviously, they would be represented, all 55, by one person. Uh, and it certainly does seem as if while the idea has uh, a lot of good intentions behind it, there will be those who will ask why. Why one and not the other. Also, what is the G20 going to be called now? Will it be the G21 or add 55 uh, numbers to it and make it the G75? The fourth challenge is now, given that there are these issues over some of the, uh, some of the various uh, documents, although it is only the main document and the Ukraine document that we've seen these notes, China did make a, a, a footnote uh, objecting to certain uh, discussions of debt reduction as well. So let's just look at, take a look at those focus areas for India where there are some problems. One are the Global South issues, as I said, debt restructuring, where India is seeking global lenders like IMF, US, China to help countries with their un unsustainable loans. 
And China has always resented the language that sees it as a sort of uh, uh, predatory loan country and someone who is causing debt trapping. So that's somewhere where a new language may have to be brought in. The second is, of course, on the reform of multilateral development banks, MDBs as they're called. Now, India has commissioned a special report by two experts, Lawrence Summers and N.K. Singh. But again, here it is possible that when you talk about multilateral development banks, IMF and the World Bank seem much more controlled by the United States may actually come under challenge from newer banks like the AIIB and the NDB, which are seen having a much greater Chinese presence. And the US-China tussle might also play out on this reform element. The third is about accelerating progress on the SGDs. Remember, India's G20 presidency collides with the crucial midpoint of the 2030 agenda of UN Sustainable Development Goals. Clearly, those goals have been derailed after the COVID-19 pandemic. So the question will be, how ambitious can India be in bringing many of them back on track? Uh, the next is the technological transformation and digital public infrastructure. Remember, DPI is something India has really been talking about, trying to bridge the digital divide, bringing all these DPIs, you know, bringing in the Aadhaar system, uh, the COVID vaccination system, uh, talking about UPIs in particular being used in different parts of the world. Even so, there's still some confusion, and particularly for Western countries, there are some concerns over whether this digital public infrastructure will come with privacy issues. And then there is the women-led development focus for India. These are all stated focuses that the G20 Secretariat has put out. Some countries, again, these might be Western countries, will wonder whether women-led development means that you're talking about gender differentiation rather than gender equality. This may be just quibbling about words, but even so, this is where some of the big challenges come. In addition, the Indian G20 presidency has sought to differentiate itself by ensuring every G20 meeting is held in a different location. Uh, more than 200 meetings, in fact, held in more than 50, I think more than 60 venues now around the country in order to showcase India's diversity. That's certainly been a logistical challenge, but it has also been a treat for all those visiting from abroad and getting to see different parts of India. Watch this space. Certainly, by the time we get to September at the G20 Summit, there'll be a lot more crystallized and a lot more to discuss here on Worldview. So what's Worldview's take at the moment? With G20 Summit preparations now going into the last month, India has to double up efforts to ensure a consensus is built, just as Indonesia did last year, and to not allow the Ukraine war to become the reason that the G20 fails to unite or to issue a communique. The burden of the heavy lifting will, of course, go to Prime Minister Narendra Modi himself. He may need to actually travel and to even set aside India's bilateral problems in order to achieve a multilateral goal in September. All right, we spoke about reading recommendations from Worldview in previous editions when we dealt with the G20. Remember, there are very few books that deal really with the G20. It's largely seen as an arcane, non-transparent organization. Uh, the top Two books that I'm going to tell you about right now is, of course, G20 at 2023, The Roadmap to Indian Presidency by V. Srinivas. Um, he is, of course, a government uh, official, and he has written this very lucid book looking at India's past positions at the G20. Another book that's come out now called India's G20 Presidency, One Earth, One Family, One Future India, Power to Empower. This is by Chandrasekhar Buddha. 
And it's really a book on Kindle. You can get through it very quickly, talking about what India's priorities in this G20 are. Uh, there are a number of others. As I said, you can go back to World G98 online and take a look at it. Here are some of the other books I thought you might find useful, especially as we are talking more and more about subjects that are polarizing the world. One, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World by Ian Bremmer, uh, who writes about the trio of global health emergencies, transformative climate change, and the AI revolution. He's also the author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, and Every Nation for Itself, Winners and Losers in a G-Zero World. Both of them very, very readable books. Um, then there's a book by Ray Dalio called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. He writes about the confluence of three things not seen since the 1930s. It's very interesting what these three things are. He talks about huge debt in the world's three major reserve currencies, big political social conflicts, particularly disparities, divides, uh, and the third, the rising of a world power, obviously China, to challenge the existing world power an existing world order led by the United States. The next book I have is called The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine by Gilbert Achkar. Uh, also, The World After Ukraine. This is a Kindle edition that's come out by Gary Kasparov, famous chess champion, but also a, a major a critic of President Putin. Uh, then there's The End of the World is Just Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization by Peter Zehan. He had earlier written Disunited Nations, I'd spoken about that, and finally a book called Chip Wars by Chris Miller, which I really would uh, recommend to talk about the future, really, of the race for critical minerals and energy. So we hope you have a lot to read and a lot to think about, and you do join us again here on Worldview. Please remember to subscribe to the Hindu's YouTube channel and like us, or log into www.thehindu.com where you can see the transcript of this entire episode there. From the team here, thanks for watching. <laughs>